All right. All right, brothers and sisters. All right, let's get started. There is something of a buzz in the room. Thank you for being here. Joy to see so many of you. I know a lot of our folks are on fall break. We saw that a little bit in the early service this morning. So some of you came back early. It's good to have you here, both for worship and then for this special opportunity to hear from one of my dear friends, um, Brad Mercer, on the subject of C.S. Lewis, which is something that's brought us together over the years. Uh, he and I both had the privilege of serving together at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, when I was an intern there, he was a, the minister of discipleship. And uh, we quickly found out that we had similar interests in books, in uh, culture, in uh, mm. literature, in all kinds of odd and, and squirrely things. <laughs> right. and, uh, that we and, can't tell you about. Yeah, most of which we have to keep under a lid, yes. Right. Um, and, and just had a marvelous time fellowshipping together and partnering together in ministry. And, and one of the great joys... Uh, of pastoral ministry is having friends in the ministry, people that you can just enjoy the fellowship with and be mutually encouraged. And Brad has been that for me and in many ways been a mentor uh, to me. And I'm grateful that he's here and that I get to introduce him to you. And he gets to speak on one of the subjects that he is uh, he loves the most and is... Um, it's a great job speaking on, so I'm really, really grateful for that. Also, I'm really thankful for Cindy, his wife, who is here, who is also a very dear friend of Christie's and mine. Uh, we had dinner with them last night. We had breakfast with them yesterday morning. We will get as much time as we can uh, with them while they're in town. And um, just really thrilled to be able to put uh, these, uh, these two saints before you this morning and for you to get to know some of our friends. That's really what it feels like for us. So that's a great, great joy. Um, Brad presently serves as Senior Associate Minister at Highlands Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, some of you will know Joseph Wheat from Village 7 out in Colorado, who's now the pastor there, and so he serves with, with Joseph. And you've been there for how many years, Brad? Eight. Eight, Eight years. years, so about as long yeah. as I've been here, uh, even there. Has two uh, children and six grandchildren? Six grandchildren, Six yes. grandchildren now. So Five that, boys. One girl. Finally got the girl. <laughs> the girl is five weeks old. Five weeks so old. That's she's awesome. She's going to be tough and spoiled. Yeah. Yeah. That is for yeah. sure. That yeah. is for sure. Well, I want to give Brad as much opportunity as possible just to share with you his heart and love for C.S. Lewis to better acquaint you with who he is, his writings, and his vision for life and for ministry. And so, Brad, I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to turn this, turn this over, and we'll talk about Lewis together. So let's pray. Father in heaven, what a joy it is to gather in your presence with your people week after week. You are so kind to us uh, to faithfully rend the heavens and send your Holy Spirit to communicate to our hardened hearts of your love and of your grace and to challenge us to become and to be the people in which you've called us to be. And we thank you, Lord, that you give us heroes to look to throughout history, those who have defended the faith, those who have stood strong for Christ, those in whom character we hope uh, to emulate, those in whom belief we hope to hold, those in whom life and outcome we hope to be true of our own. And we believe that as we speak to you this morning, our dear elder brother C.S. Lewis is in your presence. And he has gifted to us his writings and his legacy for us to study and to consider before your eye. 
so that we too might be faithful followers. I ask that you would use Brad this morning to unfold for us who Lewis is, what it is he's written, and the effectiveness in the work of his ministry. And that we, Lord, would be able to say, and our testimony would be, that in learning about C.S. Lewis and his legacy of faith, we're actually learning about you and what you've done with fallen and broken men and women and how you use them for your glory. So come and show yourself to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've got a handout here. Is there somebody that can help? Oh, thanks. There always is. <clears throat> Just make sure. Hopefully we've got, um, hopefully we've got enough of those. Um, <clears throat> before we begin, let me, uh, let me quote from the man himself. You can never really go wrong quoting C.S. Lewis. I'm tall, fat, rather bald, Red face, double chin, black hair, and I have a deep voice, and I wear glasses for reading. I'm a Christian. Professionally, I am chiefly a medievalist or a professor of English language and literature. I don't know um, <clears throat> how much you know about C.S. Lewis. Most people know something about C.S. Lewis, and in a room like this, by the way, thank you for letting me, I feel a little guilty interrupting your normal Sunday school class time, so thank you for coming and, uh, and being here. But in a room this size with this many people, there's a number of people that know about C.S. Lewis. Maybe C.S. Lewis is, is new uh, to some of you. And, and so I, I, let me ask you a couple of questions. Now, uh, we can even interact here a little bit. I know it's a fairly large room and there's lots of people, but I'm going to ask you a question Couple of couple of questions to get us started with. Let's let's see where we are. Sunday morning, we're still waking up, kind of cold outside. Let's see where we are. Where was C.S. Lewis from? Where was he born? Ireland. All right. Where in Ireland? Okay. He was born in the Belfast area of Northern Ireland. Sometimes when we think of C.S. Lewis, we think he's English. You know, he comes off very English, and, you know, the, how he dresses, how he talks. If anybody ever heard his, we know that he's dead, he's been dead for a number of years, but anybody heard, ever heard his voice recorded, his real voice? He sounds English, and a lot of people think he's English. No, he's from Northern Ireland. He calls himself Irish. Tell me what is unique about the day that C.S. Lewis died. Okay. Okay. Somebody say it. say it again. Okay. Yeah. He was. He died the same day that JFK died. So he didn't get many headlines. There was also a philosopher named Aldous Huxley that that died the same day, also, and and so some people, um, many people, not aware of that, but it kind of gets lost. Uh, there's a movie that was made about C.S. Lewis, a number of movies that have been made about his works, about his writings, but a movie about his life. Anybody know the title of that? And Shadowlands, okay? Tell me something. Oh, this is great. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun already. You, you're knowledgeable. Um, tell me something about C.S. Lewis's wife. Joy. Um, and, and there's an irony there. C.S. Lewis wrote a book once that, that was called, it was his spiritual auto, sort of his spiritual autobiography, and it was called Surprised by Joy, and then he eventually marries somebody named Joy. Tell me about Joy, his wife. 
She, is, she was previously married. Yes, she was uh, previously married and, and divorced. Uh, anything else? She was American. Um, Lewis loved to make fun of Americans. He didn't particularly like Americans. Um, and he married an American. Um, anything else about her? She, she, she was also a writer. She uh, died of cancer. Anything else? She wasn't a believer. She was an atheist for a number of years. Something that's really important. Good job so far. Keep going. Uh, two boys. Yeah, really only one is, is uh, emphasized in the film. What? She was Jewish. She was Jewish. And she wrote a, a wonderful book, by the way, called, a great title, wonderful book, called Smoke on the Mountain, about the Ten Commandments. Excellent book, don't agree with everything in it, just like any book, but it's a great little book. It's called Smoke on the Mountain, about the Ten Commandments. Hey, tell me who was very instrumental in leading C.S. Lewis to Christ, very, very well-known, famous person. J.R.R. Tolkien, what did he do? <laughs> right, okay, we, we know all about him. He was very instrumental in, in leading C.S. Lewis to Christ. Well, that's, that's a, a, a few questions. I'm, I'm, you're, um, thank you for interacting this morning. Um, number two, I, I, I've, I say there that C.S. Lewis has the gift of making righteousness readable. Uh, that's a quote from a very famous quote from somebody that was uh, describing uh, C.S. Lewis, and we all know C.S. Lewis quotes. Let me ask you, can anybody quote C.S. Lewis just off the top of your head? Any favorite quote? Oh, I finally got you. Um, C.S. Lewis is so quotable. You know, you can't go wrong. Um, uh, let me give you a, a few. Yeah, he's not safe, but he's good. And that's from, yeah, it's from the Chronicles of Narnia. Here's one I love from um, Reflections on the Psalms. Praise is inner health made audible. Typical Lewis, you know, you can think about that for a long time. Praise is inner health made audible. Here's another one. All that is not eternal is eternally out of date. All that is not eternal is eternally out of date. Uh, one of my, my favorites, if you lust after ham and eggs, you've already committed breakfast in your heart. <laughs> uh, Lewis has a wonderful... Yes, yes, say that again, that's excellent. Yes, everybody, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You know what book that's from? It's The Problem of Pain. Uh, one, of the, one of the great offerings of The Problem of Pain, by the way, is Lewis talks about how God uses pain in our lives, and it, it's a, it's a that's just one of the many benefits of that book, how God uses pain in our lives. Here's another one. You never really know how much you believe anything until it's a matter of life and death to you. You never really know how much you believe anything until it's a matter of life and death to you. Um, he's not safe. 
but he's good. Oh, here's, here's, a, here's a zinger. Odd how the less the, 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 the less the Bible is read, the more it's translated. <laughs> and true, right? And he's writing that in the 40s. The less the Bible's read, the more it's translated. And, and one more, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. His compulsion is our liberation. Um, and matter of fact, I took, when I wrote my dissertation, I took uh, the, the part, of, part of that quote, compulsion and liberation, and Lewis is very good on how to work out, we're not going to do that, we don't have time for that this morning, but he's very good at working out God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. One more. Have you ever wondered how, I, I don't, I, I'm not going to encourage you to do this, I don't recommend it, but Lewis asks the question once, how to avoid God? How do you avoid God? Here's how. This is Lewis. Avoid silence. Avoid solitude. Concentrate on money. Sex. Status. Health. And above all, on your own grievances. Keep the wireless on at the time. You might, we might want to say radio or computer or TV, iPod, iPad, iPhone, and, or some other thing that begins with an I. Keep it on. Use plenty of sedation. If you read books, select them very carefully. You'd best stick to newspapers. And we might, we might mention a couple of cable news programs. You'll find advertisements very helpful, especially those that are sexy or snobbish or condescending. How to avoid God. Um, Lewis is um, everywhere. He's quoted everywhere. When we moved into the, where we're staying, right next to the bed on the bedside table was a copy of the Screwtape Letters, and it was actually read and all marked up. A few weeks ago, the um, young adults in, in, in our church came, a group of young adults said, we want to read Mere Christianity. Will you come and introduce Mere Christianity to us? And I did. And it was wonderful. They were early 20s. They were hungry for it. Some of it, it was going to be their third time to read it. And we all know about Narnia, how Narnia is, is red and red and red. Lewis is everywhere. I remember a man who was an elder at uh, First Pres, Don Brazil, contracted cancer. And he said, you know, I'm reading A Grief Observed. And it's really, boy, it's hard, but it's really meant a lot to me. It's really helped. So Lewis is quoted. He's everywhere. You can find his books everywhere. We just had a junior high retreat at, at Highlands, The Gospel According to Narnia. And, and, and that wasn't my, not, you know, I do have an influence, but, but, but it was their idea. They said, we want to do something. And junior high kids were introduced to The Gospel According to, to Narnia. 
In the time that I have this morning, I, I would really like to focus. I've been reading C.S. Lewis for a number of years. I'm not, I got, I got snow on the roof, but I'm not so old that I knew Lewis. But I did know his personal secretary, Walter Hooper, if you've ever come across that name, who edited most of his books and, and had the opportunity to spend some time with him. And I've been reading Lewis for a long, long time. And this is just my perspective on whether you've been reading Lewis for a long time or you want to be introduced, how do we get to the heart of C.S. Lewis, who he was, how, do he, how he communicated, how he can benefit us? And you can do that if you go to God in the Dock and you read, read a four-page little piece of writing called Meditation in a Tool Shed. And that just tells you something wonderful about Lewis right away. C.S. Lewis was very impatient with abstraction. He, he would say, look, anybody can talk and, and read and write, speak in abstract, theological, important-sounding language. It's the translation to where, you know, normal people, somewhat normal, you look normal, somewhat normal people like you and me can, can understand it. And so he begins by, with this title, Meditation in a Tool Shed, and then he goes on to say, and I encourage you to read it, he goes on to say, I was in my tool shed one day, and as I walked into my tool shed and looked back at the door, this, is, this, is, this works great because we already have a little bit of light coming in. He says, I saw a beam of light, walked into my tool shed, he's down to earth, making it practical, I see this beam of light coming, the shaft of light before my eyes, and I can see the beam, I can see the dust floating in the beam. I'm looking at the beam of light. It makes sense. Pretty clear. But then he says, I changed my perspective. And I walked like this. I could probably walk down. There's a, I can't quite do it. Oh, almost. There's a beam of light, and now it's hitting my eye. And he looks along the beam, and he says his perspective completely changes. Looking at the beam, looking along the beam. He said, when I looked along the beam, I could see trees, the sky, the sun, how the wind was blowing the trees. I, I was entering into the experience of, of looking along the beam rather than just looking at it. And he goes on to say, that is essential to understanding how we should live and think. Now, what, what, is, what, what in the world is that all about? He goes on to say, look, when you look at the beam, you're trying to be objective, you're trying to be rational, you're trying to be scientific. Good. Looking at it. Um, but when you step into it, your imagination is engaged. Your emotions are engaged. Your experience, it's like somebody looking at, you know, you ask, you ask a, a young man or a young woman who's just fallen in love, why do you love him? Why do you love her? And you just say, I just love her. I, it's sort of beyond words. Well, take a 
psychologist or a sociologist or some other expert and, you know, well, you know, you know I, all, all that person would potentially see in evaluating them objectively is the movement of gray matter. Sort of trying to evaluate objectively. Let me give you a very concrete example. We just talked about both these books. Early on in the 1930s, Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And he was trying to objectively sort of evaluate and define pain from the outside. Later on, he lost his wife to cancer. And he experienced it. And he stepped into the experience. And he wrote a book called A Grief Observed. Both books are valuable. Both books are helpful. One, objective, rational, scientific, objective. One, experiential, emotional. One of the great, great benefits of C.S. Lewis is C.S. Lewis believes, if, if, you, if you've been sleeping until now, wake up for this one. C.S. Lewis believed that your imagination needs to be trained. Not just your intellect, not just your rationality, not just your objectivity, but what you love, what you feel needs to be trained. What you imagine needs to be trained. Your imagination, your emotions, your intellect, your right brain, your left brain, your heart, your head. It all needs to be trained, and one of the reasons why Lewis continues to be so popular is he wants to minister to the whole person. He wouldn't just say, you know, you get at your heart through your head. He would sometimes say, you get at your head through your heart. Sometimes hearts follow habits. Sometimes habits follow hearts. It works both ways. My wife... <laughs> is right there. Uh, she's an artist, and all that goes with that. Uh, she's she's a and 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 so I can tell you so many times I'm walking into her studio and I'm looking at Cindy's Cindy painting something and I see brush strokes on a canvas. It, it, it means nothing to me. I, I see these. I see different colors and I see the different kinds of paint, and I see the, the canvas, and I see brush strokes, and I see more and more brush strokes. It's paint on a canvas. And then suddenly it, it, it all comes together. You, you can, you, how, how would you define a painting? A painting is brush strokes of paint on a canvas. And then you look at, you step inside, and it's beautiful. How did you do that? And by the way, there's a little essay in, in, um, in one of Lewis, well, it's actually in a couple of different books, but it's called Membership. And Lewis defines, here's how he defines you. Membership. You know, that, that, that wonderful metaphor of the church in the Bible, uh, membership, and he, 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 he describes it like this. It's like brushstrokes on a canvas, and every one of us is a different brushstroke. And the brushstrokes come together 
and they eventually look like Jesus. It's just, it's classic Lewis, one of the reasons why I love him and so many. It, every one of you is a brushstroke, and we are being created in the image of Jesus. And people should look at all of our brushstrokes that make, make us the church and eventually see Jesus. I, um, I have lots of goofy interests, and, and one of them is... I don't know, I think it comes from my dad. I have an interest in, maybe you do, and you can teach me something. Some of, usually somebody will come up at the end. I've always wanted to go to Germany. My dad knew German and taught, he was a theology professor. He taught at Wheaton College and Moody Bible Institute and a couple of other places and finally got to go to Germany a couple years ago. And there were a couple of places that I really wanted to go. I wanted to see Wittenberg and Luther's grave and went to, to Berlin and Eisenach and all that. But there was one place that I particularly wanted to go. I wanted to see, <laughs> I wanted to see Leipzig and I wanted to see the grave of the I would humbly submit, uh, the greatest musician who's ever lived, Johann Sebastian Bach. And um, it, it's the one time on my sabbatical I, I kind of teared up. And it, Leipzig is a little town in East Germany. I never thought I'd be so excited to be in East Germany. I walked up, and it's a gravestone in a church in the Thomaskirche in Leipzig. And, and there's Johann Sebastian Bach. And it was very, very moving. And of course, I, a little later, I sat down in, a, in one of the pews there, and the organ, the, this was the next day, I went back, and we stayed there for a week and did various things. And I was sitting there one morning, just sitting in the church, and the organist got up into the organ loft in the back of the church, and he started practicing, and he started playing in, in Bach's church in Leipzig, and I'm sitting there looking at Bach's grave, he starts playing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I'm just in a pile. <laughs> but if you know anything about Bach's music, it is very complicated. Uh, as the musician at our church tells me, it's full of notes. <laughs> uh, fugue, counterpoint, if you know anything about Bach. And it, it's like a, Bach's music is like a conversation going back and forth, all kinds of instruments talking to one another. And you'll hear people all the time talk about how mathematically complicated Bach's music is. And it is. And that's looking at Bach's music. It's mathematically full of counterpoint. It's very complicated. It's full of notes. Some people say he's a scientist or a mathematician at work. He is. And then there's the music. Somebody in here, I'm sure, knows how. I don't even know how to define music. You can try. You know it when you hear it. You, there's another example. Is he complicated? Yes. Is he, is he scientific? Yes. Do we see lots of complicated mathematics? Yes. And then there's the music. Which do we need? We need both. Which do we need? We need both. Again, it's like defining a relationship that you have and experiencing. You know, whether it's a, a romantic relationship, a friendship relationship, yeah, I can sort of define it to you. This is 
what it's about, and here we are. But then there's the friendship. There's the love. It's, it's just kind of hard to define. And Lewis, writing back in the, the 40s and 50s, says, you know, those who are looking at have it all their own way these days, uh, debunking and deconstructing and tearing down and being objective, which is impossible. That is the, the core and heart of the passion of the way Lewis lived, the way he wrote, the way he taught. Looking at and looking along in a tool shed, so typical of Lewis, in four pages. And you can see that everywhere. Sometimes he, he makes a distinction between enjoyment and contemplation. You, can, you, you contemplate something by looking at it objectively. You enjoy something by stepping into the experience. And Lewis wants to edge. That's why he is so engaging, because he believes that all of us have emotion. We have will. We have affection. We have desires. We have imagination. All of that needs to be trained, not just to know stuff, but to feel stuff and to imagine stuff and to be passionate. And he tends to engage all those things. Now, look at, you can see on the, on the back side of your, your handout, I want to just, this is one way to summarize uh, what, I'm, what I'm getting at here, and we'll finish up in a, in a few minutes. But I want to mention at least a couple of, of problems that you would see in Lewis. And, and by the way, I'm, I usually do what I do in, you know, six to 12 weeks or whatever. Thank you for putting up with me uh, this, this one time. Where I want to try, I'm trying to get you, to, I've been wrestling with Lewis, and I don't always agree with him, and talking to, talking to Lewis scholars, and I'm trying to give you the core of Lewis and why you should absolutely read him, but also what you should watch out for. Uh, Lewis is a mid-20th century British Anglican. Nothing wrong with that, uh, but there, there are issues a, a, along the way, and you can see where it says problems in Lewis. You will notice when you read Lewis, and I just, I'm not going to tell you what they are, you can see them when you come across them. If you read Lewis or you know somebody that's reading Lewis, occasionally Lewis can sound very old-fashioned, out of date, and quaint. And some, some views are clearly dated when you read Lewis. You're thinking, oh, this is, ooh, this is a little embarrassing, this is very out of date. Yes, you're going to see that. He, he was a mid-20th century Anglican. So look, look for that. And, and Lewis, does not, Lewis is not a, a Bible exegete, a, 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 a wonderful, astounding. See, I can say all these wonderful things about Nate and then leave town. And, uh, and, uh, like Nate, great Bible teacher. That's not what Lewis is about. And he'll speculate all the time. He'll say, hey, it might be like this, and I'm thinking this, and you might consider this, but if it doesn't help you, forget it. He does that all the time. Here's what I think about the atonement, for example, in mere Christianity. This is, these, here's some ideas about the atonement, but if it doesn't help you, just don't worry about it. And he does that a lot. He's not always the best guide for every Christian doctrine because he speculates a lot. Just need to tell you that. 
So what is he usually doing in his books? Here's something that you really need to know, I really need to emphasize. Lewis is not trying to prove the existence of God. He's not trying to prove the existence of God. You see, see where it says, what is Lewis usually doing in his books? People say, well, in mere Christianity, Lewis is trying to prove that God exists. He is not. He, doesn't, he does not believe that you can do that. He present, often what Lewis is doing, and this is why he sounds so friendly, you know, like your great uncle or somebody. He speaks very down to earth, very honestly, very personally, and, and he uses the word supposal. He's often saying, suppose this, or think about it this way. The very first line of mere Christianity is, Everyone has heard people quarreling. <laughs> Just this profound book that keeps going. The first line, everyone has heard people quarreling. And then he goes on and he says, why do people quarrel? And then he goes on to argue for the reality of a, an objective, moral, natural law. <laughs> but, but he starts with, everybody's, everybody's heard people quarreling. He's, he will often, here's what... Um, Lewis will often do. He'll say, it's, it's as though he's saying to you, hey, follow me to the window. I can't get at any of these windows, so I'll just pretend. Follow me to the window. Look out there. Look out there when you're reading Great Divorce or Till We Have Faces or Narnia. Look out there at Gloam, or Narnia, or heaven, or hell. I want to show you something in this world that I've created. Now, when you turn back, and you walk back into your life, I hope you're changed. I hope you see things differently now. I hope your intellect, your imagination, your passion, your emotion, I hope all that's been engaged. But let me take you to a window, show you this, and then when you come back into this world, this life, hopefully you'll think differently and you'll see things differently. But he's never saying, you know, this is an argument for the, he'll say, consider this, consider this. He doesn't believe there's some kind of foolproof argument for the existence of God. Um, he writes his books for Christians and non-Christians. And by the way, this is huge. A book like, like Mere Christianity. How many of you have read Mere Christianity? Just, okay. Um, how many of you have read Mere Christianity as a Christian? Was anybody led to Christ or was that a help in coming to Christ? Okay. Uh, that particular book, you can read that with great, great profit as a Christian, particularly when Lewis talks about ethics and behavior and what's expected. I, I, toward the end of the book, there's a little chapter called, Is Christianity, go read it, Is Christianity Hard or Easy? I won't give you the answer. It's just wonderful. It's, it, 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 is Christianity hard or easy? Many people have asked that. Is it hard? Well, it's just, I'm not sure. What do you think? And it's a wonderful way to get us thinking about, um, about Christianity. Um, so it, it, you can, wherever you are in your Christian life, your pilgrimage, Lewis can be very helpful, and, and he is. 
Um, Lewis looks for timeless truths. One of the things that Lewis does not involve himself in is the particular political moments of the day. In fact, he didn't really read newspapers, and he didn't follow politics, and he was very careful, and so his books come off as timeless. Because he, he's looking for timeless truths. Uh, number four, common human trust. One of the things that I realized just a few years ago, how does Lewis seem to know me so well? How does he seem to know how people... You, you ever read the screw tape letters? It's, now remember, some of it's dated. And you might not get... Some, but how does he know me? How does he know my temptations and what I read? How does he know this so well? I'll tell you how he knows it. He was one of the best and most well-read men in the 20th century. And he read fiction, he read fantasy, he read fairy tale, he read novels. Loved Jane Austen. He read the greatest literature ever written and he was steeped in it so he knows how people think. And people came from all over the world to study. So he didn't have to go anywhere. He had people coming from all over the world to study with him. But he understands human nature. We've mentioned this already, number five, Lewis sees reason in the context of experience, affections, imagination, all of those things are important. Lewis is a poet at heart. Again, he's always trying to figure out how to make something clear and understandable. You know, he once said, any fool can use learned language. It's translating to where a child can understand it that's the key. It's the translation work. His books are about mere Christianity. And that doesn't mean lightweight, simple, superficial. It means the great core tradition of Christianity that's passed down to us. And Lewis does not offer cheap grace. Lewis never says, you know, all you got to do is this, and it's all going to be wonderful. You know, it's going to be hard. And often, grace hurts. And life is hard. He never talks down to you and says, look, you don't understand all this suffering and difficulty and pain you're experiencing. If you will just fill in the blank, you'll be fine. He never does that. He talks to us honestly about where we are. And ultimately, Lewis's books remain and last because he keeps focusing on the gospel in his own way. He saw himself as a pre-evangelist. He called himself a pre-evangelist, sort of getting people to consider the gospel. And then finally, at the bottom, um, one of the things that, that um, we, we should notice is, is Lewis, you, you see this all the time, he appreciates the daily, he appreciates the ordinary. He can make, and again, remember, he's a mid-20th century Anglican, so he's always drinking and smoking. He's not a teetotaler, and he doesn't like teetotalers. <laughs> but he can make smoking a cigarette, I don't recommend this, he can make smoking a cigarette or a pipe or having a pint in the pub with his friends and going for a walk sound so fantastic. <laughs> wow. We need that. We need somebody who can tell us a walk with your friend on a Sunday afternoon and a pint at the pub is one of God's great gifts. And that just constantly comes through in Lewis. But his personal life, and, and you know, again, Lewis is, is, is very 
far from perfect. He's always, most of the proceeds from his published books go to charity. This is a man who was speaking, <laughs> he was speaking at an event like this one time, and it was very hot, and it was a church, it was full of people like this, and, and somebody said, why don't you take your jacket off? The guy in the front row said, why don't you take your jacket off? He said, I, I can't, I got a hole in my shirt. I mean, he lived through a depression. He fought in World War I. He lived with, through World War II. He, he volunteered to walk around the streets with a rifle and look for German airplanes in World War II in Oxford. And he hung around with a lot of common people. He saw himself as a translator and a smuggler. He, he believed that he needed to be creative about the way he was communicating Christianity. And he writes in all kinds of ways. Theology, apologetics, fantasy, fiction, myth, satire. He write, he's so gifted in writing in so many different ways. So I commend... I guess that bell means I'm over time. Uh, he, I, I commend Lewis to you. I encourage you. There's, there's something for, for everybody, and we'll be around. We can talk more about it, but thank you, Nate. Can I close in prayer? Would you okay, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the, 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 as Nate has said, we have many who have come before us who are sinful, who are fallen, who are redeemed. Um, and, and yet can help us in, in so many ways to, to learn, to grow, to be challenged. And the unique gifts that you give someone like Lewis, Lewis often transports us, e even in something like Narnia, not, not a, an escape from reality, but an escape to reality. This world we live in is dark and broken and, and fallen, and he gives us glimpses time after time after time of what it's like to know you and walk with you and look forward to seeing your face and being with you for all eternity. So thank you for him and so many others. Thank you for those that are, that are here today. I hope they have been uh, convicted, challenged, encouraged. Lord, help us through great writers like Lewis to educate our emotions, educate our imaginations, educate our intellects. Everything that makes us us. We pray that it would be formed into the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.